Uh, please open your copies of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 6, please. We're not quite finishing off this epistle this evening, but almost. And we read from verses 18 to 24, please, just that last short section. Ephesians chapter 6, and reading from verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, and for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And so it is verse 23 that we uh, hope to examine this evening uh, with the Lord's uh, gracious help. So verse 23 says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as the, the Apostle now closes this uh, epistle, he's had a... We've noticed that the personal element as he closes the epistle, as he's moved on from the application of prayer uh, to the request for prayer, and then he gives them information that he's going to send Tychicus, who is going to give much more information about the mission field and the works and any other information which is relevant that they would then have details for prayer. And now he, he finishes off. Um, and we could say the verses 23 and 24 together make, make uh, one benediction. That is, that is possible. But, I was, uh, but if we split it into two, um, and for brevity's sake, just taking verse 23 on its own, it's certainly the well-wishing of the apostle to the, to the believers. That there is well-wishing here. And we'll just take those separately and examine the apostle's well-wishing. Uh, the apostles well wishing, as we read so many so many times in in the epistles that there is a wish from the apostles for good things uh, to the readers separately from uh, a final uh, benediction so let 's just examine in, in two points the the apostles well wishing and we see firstly he 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 wishes them well with the gifts of grace uh, he says there peace be to the brethren and love with faith. And notice then, immediately, the apostle is not like a, a false prophet or a false preacher that we'll see uh, on the telly these days, but they've existed since time immemorial, uh, and pronouncing earthly treasures and earthly blessings and physical uh, well-being upon them all. Not that that's not important in any way, but his desire, rather, is emphasized in the spiritual things. In grace, he wants them to grow in grace. And as he says elsewhere, and he implies here, and to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
And the two specific graces that are mentioned here, well, we might add a third, but we have peace and love. Peace and love are those two spiritual gifts that he would have them have or have them to abound in. So if you do add the third, faith, we have to admit, though, that it is joined to love here. So love with faith. And so when we examine it, we will not examine it as three, but peace and then peace to the brethren and then love with faith paired together, as the apostle has written it. Peace then, firstly. Well, peace, if we will state the obvious, and it's always good to do so, what is peace? Well, peace itself is always a wonderful state of an absence of conflict and war. So where there has been war, where there has been conflict, where there has been difficulties, not any old difficulties, but you know, thinking of war and death and things like that, then, then peace is, uh, is, is seen more clearly. It's, uh, it's seen for what it is, a precious commodity. If you've gone through difficulties, uh, if you've gone through war, gone through trauma, gone through conflict, and then there's peace, whether it's uh, thinking of a national level or even on a personal level, and, and then there's peace, then we know how precious that is and how, how wonderful it is. Uh, and we know how precious, it is, precious peace is to everybody because in many ways, people, not everybody, but many people seek for peace. They seek for peace in some way. There are those that go uh, hiking and mountain climbing to get away from the noise of a city or even to get away from the talk of chatter of other people. There are those that uh, will get drunk and take drugs just to calm uh, the sound of a noisy conscience or to, or the cries of emotional and psychological wounding. They just want it to be quiet, and that seems to them the way of, of, of having peace. It is no peace, of course. It is, it is a merely shutting of the ears, but the noise is still there. The wounds are still there. The difficulties are still there. And many people especially since the 1960s, taking up Eastern mystical practices to give themselves some idea, I think of like meditation and transcendental meditation, and to give themselves a feeling of peace, having, having taught themselves to, to control in some way the constant chatter and babble of the thoughts. But again, that's just a turning down of the volume. The actual source of the problem, the source of the noise, the, 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 maybe the, the, the conscience that's claim, complaining against them is still there. They've just found a volume. They've learned to turn a volume knob. So, that, I mean, just those, in, just those three examples to show how much people desire peace. They desire uh, to have that uh, feeling of peace, at least. And, um, of course, we still commemorate uh, every year uh, the, uh, the restoration of peace after great conflicts on, on Remembrance Day. And we think immediately of the two great world wars, but the 20th century consisted of more than just two wars. So for, for the Christian, though, because that, of course, is the context in which we are considering these words, the Christian himself or herself, peace is that precious fruit of the forgiveness of sin of peace with God, against whom we ward. We ward in our heart, we ward in our thoughts, we ward with our lips, we ward with our actions. We were at war with our own Creator. We were the, the rebels against a good and kind and merciful God. 
And there's a terrible situation, of course, but then the Lord, by his grace, comes and opens our heart and, and shows us that we're rebels, shows us that we're at war with him, and shows us also uh, that he is also at war with us. We are under his wrath and his curse. And so when we do come to Christ and we find that peace uh, and the conscience is, is, is soothed, it's stilled, it is because God declares through the cross the remission of sins and the removal of wrath. That, that, that perfect and blessed peace that we, that we have, and it, we know that that's not always experienced. We know that there are Christians who, who struggle to have that assurance of faith so they may not experience it and feel the fullness and the richness of that forgiveness for whatever reason, for whatever whatever spiritual complaint there may be, whatever misunderstanding or lack of trust. Uh, but the peace is there. The peace is there. It's, it's, it's a legal passing. Maybe somebody uh, you may know or you can imagine that somebody goes to a court and they have a terrible case against them uh, and there seems to be so much evidence against them they're going to go to prison for life but they're innocent in their case just to give us an understanding. And then the judge says not guilty. And for weeks and months after, they're still shaking their head. I can't believe it. I, I, was, I was declared innocent. I was declared not guilty. And, but it's true. It's written down in paper and it was signed by the judge as soon as it was announced. It was a fact and that they're still shaking their head. And so in some ways we can understand that when people have experienced God's grace, that, you know, some um, can struggle with that, even though it is a truth. It's not only is a truth, but it's also an epithet. It's a title of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. He is that king that has been victorious over every enemy, every, everything that has warred. Firstly, well not firstly, but personally, he has conquered you, believer. He conquered you. He has uh, conquered your, uh, your rebellion against him. He has, he has conquered, as we, as we know, he, on the cross, he conquered your sin. He, he conquered, as it were, the wrath of God as he took it and, and took it away from you. But sin, Satan, and you, primarily, if we think of conquering, are better applied in those ways. So he is that conquering and glorious king. And of course, the, the, the great almost contradiction, but it isn't, that he is the great conquering king as he's hanging on the cross. As he's there suffering as the outcast of Jewish society, rejected by the authorities. With that vicarious, that substitutionary suffering on the cross of on his cross Colossians 1 and 20 speak of that peace and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself and by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven he's made peace through his blood and so it's precious uh, when we realize and when we understand, and we may not understand it uh, ourselves, we may do. We may do before we are converted. We may have a, have a great struggle with conscience and, and, and conviction of sin. We may not. It may be later on after conversion that we start to understand more what the Scriptures say about our own wickedness. As we read the Scriptures and we look at ourselves and we see, indeed, what a wicked man that I am. But in any case, then we understand that all of that wickedness, the rebellion, the warring, the hate against God has been, has been removed because he made peace through the blood of his cross. 
we could say more about Colossians 1.20, but suffice it to say that, that there is great peace to be found um, in the gospel, and therefore peace be to the brethren. But the specific context that he, he gives here is, is peace to be granted to the believers, to the brethren. So, well, is, is that then different? Is he saying that they're not brethren, they need to be converted? No, he's speaking at a, about a peace that's still needed or that still needs to be renewed or still needs to be considered because the simple truth is as, as we read in the scriptures and as we experience in life that even within the church there is not always peace there's not always peace there's conflict we read that in the New Testament we read it in the Old Testament we know it from history we know it as I said maybe even in our own experience besides petty gossip you have vicious slander you have groups vying against each other. You can have a tyrannical leadership, you can have a rebellious congregation or both. And there are those within the congregation that would vie for power and status. And so there wouldn't be peace. There wouldn't be peace. Or even something as simple as those that don't pull their own weight and others then feel uh, abused and taken for granted while they do all the work or whatever it, wherever it might be, whatever it is, and I think I've just mentioned the obvious ones, but these and so many other matters can disturb the peace of a congregation, disturb the peace in the interpersonal relationships. And the apostle does not want this. And that's why he closes his epistle to these believers with really desiring, well-wishing them to have peace, that there be peace um, to the brethren. And so he desires, when he says peace to the brethren, he desires that there be peace within the brethren, amongst the brethren. As we've mentioned already, at conversion, of course, there is great peace to be found in Jesus Christ. Great personal peace. But that peace needs to be seen and expressed within the body of believers, as I've just mentioned. But then coming back to that personal peace, a believer experiencing that peace at conversion still sins continues to sin and, and still needs to find that fresh peace with the Lord, having, having sinned, having, having become guilty of whatever sin, large or small, collection of small sins, uh, an abiding sin. Uh, and then, as, as David did in Psalm 30, 51, speaking, you know, creating me a new heart. His heart was not good. Born again soul. Born again man. We, we know that from the context, but there we see finally the Word of God enters in. And if we count the months, the baby had just been born, the baby was struck with disease probably in the first few days of life. So there's at least, so there's nine months, say, of, of hardened heart in David where he stays in his sin. And the Scriptures are having no effect, it seems. He knows the Scriptures. He penned many parts of the scriptures in the Psalms. And yet it had no effect upon him. And no doubt he's going to the weekly synagogue, and if in that time he, he went to one of those, those three temp times at the temple, or, or two other periods. But it took the servant of God to speak to him directly, and then his heart was broken, then he was convicted, then he humbled himself, then he saw his sin. And then he had peace with God because he repented. 
but he hadn't repented for such a long time. So it's shocking to consider the hardness of the Christian heart can be when it goes into a backslidden state of mind and will fight against God, fight against, strive against the Spirit. But the biblical answer, therefore, is to keep short accounts with God. Now, that is a, an, an old-fashioned expression that when people would go to the grocery store and have an account. And so they go and say, just put it on my account. I'll have this and this and this. Just put it on my account and you'd get your, you'd get your bill at the end of the month, for example. The end of the, whenever, when harvest came in, you would pay off your accounts. But the longer that you left it, the greater the account was and the more difficult it was to pay it off. And so the expression of keeping short accounts with God is, is where you've sinned, and, and, and we sin very regularly, every day, is that when we're aware of that there is sin, that there's something that's come between us and God, then what are we to do? Then we are to keep short accounts, and we are to repent of them there and then. And say, oh, well, it doesn't matter it's, it's not very big sin. That's not how the Lord ever considers sin. Sin is lie, sin is death, sin is rebellion. And so we keep our accounts short, and how do we do that? Well, we do that by the way of repentance. In other words, we humble ourselves before God. We, we confess, we admit that we, ha- we have sinned against Him. We can't hide behind a a religious mask. There are those that do so, but we can't hide behind a religious mask before the Lord. And so we we repent that we may know uh, that we have peace with God again because He has said that He will forgive us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanses from all unrighteousness and as we know John in that first epistle is writing to believers and so we have that peace restored that precious peace so the peace to the brethren amongst the brethren but also within each brother in Christ and then he speaks of love and love here that word that's used here of course well, I'll say of course but it's it's almost everywhere in the New Testament is that agape love that unconditional that pure, um, undemanding, uh, one-way, divine love. I say one-way because it's not expecting two-way traffic. It just goes forth, it goes out, in spite of whether the person deserves it or has done anything to earn it. No, it's an, it's an undeserved and unconditional and love, and that's the love that he says here. So, peace be to the brethren and love with faith. So again, he's still speaking to the brethren, but now he talks about this love, and so he desires not only that there is peace, we say, shouldn't there be peace? Well, we've just considered ways in which there is not peace, either internally or interpersonally. But we also now see love. And he wants love, he wants there to be love amongst the brethren. And we could speak about what love is in all these, in all these matters, Uh, But he's really speaking of love with faith. So there is to be a love uh, with faith. It's coupled with faith. And what does that then for mean? That it's love that comes forth from a true faith. That this love is an expression of faith. As we were uh, recently speaking about the fruits, the fruits of a, 
of a true of a tr of a true penitent Christian, a true repentant Christian. Uh, we can consider so many things besides uh, besides what is the truth uh, of. We can be convinced by what people say about somebody. We can be convinced what they say about themselves, and and all these different matters and and stories that they have. And and but the Bible never tells us to rest upon that, either for our own assurance of faith or to understand someone else's walk with Christ. It, it, the conversion story is never demanded, or how great the ministry is, or what they have, or what they speak about spiritual experiences. The Bible is insistent is on the fruit, the fruit. And so love here is certainly a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of faith, the kindness. When we think of love, then we think of kindness, we think of forbearance, we think of forgiveness, we think of those practical acts of charity as well. And they are to be studied in the Scriptures. How would the Lord have me to live? If you love me, keep my commandments. And then the attitude of the Christian should be, well, let me know all these commandments that I may love him more. And so that's what, that's what we do. We study them and we act upon them. We hear the preaching, we do it. We're hearers and doers. We, we are readers and appliers. And such is love with faith. And that's specifically within the context of the church. Because I say he's speaking to the brethren. That's his well-wishing is targeted to the Ephesian believers, and he calls them brethren. And I think I may have mentioned this once before. I'll say it again. The word brethren, of course, is a biblical term for all believers, male and female. And it's, it's not a sort of sexist, exclusive term that's, that's wrongly applied, or it's not just... Uh, talking to men. The context can be that it's only talking to men, but not here. He's speaking to uh, the brethren. And why, why are they called brothers? Why are they called brethren? Well, that's because of the sonship that all believers have in the Son. As they have been saved by the Son of God, as they are to be image bearers of the Son of God, then they are all the sons of God. So often that term is used as well, sons of God. And in a few places we have the children of God as well. But love is something that he knows is a fragile thing, as can be faith. But where there's no faith, there is no love, either to God or to the brethren. But he demands, no, he doesn't demand, he desires that peace be to the brethren and love with faith. So the gifts of grace that Paul mentions as he closes this uh, epistle. But what about the giver of grace? Because that's what he points to next in the verse. The giver of grace. So he says, peace be to the brethren and love with faith. And then he says where this, where this grace comes from. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we're confronted with the, the truth. Not confronted, but we see the truth here. That, that God himself is the giver of these graces. That Paul is well wishing upon them. And we have the truth also that each of the Trinitarian persons of the one Godhead is involved in, in granting uh, these spiritual graces, these spiritual benefits. So we see firstly then God the Father. We'll look at three persons very briefly as we close. So we have God the Father. Who is God the Father? God the Father, as we understand from the witness of the Scriptures, is the planner of redemption. He planned redemption. He planned it together with the Son, we understand that also. 
But we read, when we read the Gospels, we, we, we understand that the, the Gospel and the words of the Gospel and the command and the call and the works that were done by the Son in His earthly ministry, He always says, I, I have received them from the Father. They're from the Father. So the Son has received them from the Father. He wants to give glory to the Father, but it also indicates in some way, as we try to understand uh, the Trinity, that the Father is, is, as it were, the planner, or the, the, the give, given, given primacy of place in the, sense of the, in the sense of the gospel, because then Christ, or the Son of God, I should say, as Christ humbles himself, although he be co-equal with the Father, humbles himself as the God-man to become the mediator, to stand between God and man. So it's only in the sense of, of Christ and in his, specifically in his humanity and specifically in his role as mediator that he could say that he as Father is greater than I am. Only in that specific role. But in truth, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are co-equally God. And so peace, as we're looking in the context here, love, faith, are from the Father, yes they are, but they are given to us through the Son. They're given to us through the Son, who's, who's mentioned next. So from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've had God the Father, we have God the Son. So where the Father is the, we could say, the planner of salvation, and of course these terms are, are helpful, they don't say everything. We can also say, just to give a specialism, as regards to the gospel, we say then the Son is the purchaser of redemption. The Father, the planner, the, the Son, the purchaser. And that really points to, to, to that one aspect of that core aspect of, of the gospel that the, the incarnate God-man is the redeemer. He redeems. He delivers. And all of redemption is, is offered through the Son as we considered on the Lord's Day evening. Be ye not troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. And we must have Christ. And then we go to verse, verses 6 and 7 where it speaks you know, that, that Christ is the only way to the Father. So we're desiring peace with God, we're desiring relationship with God. Uh, well, that's only through the Son. Only through the Son. So the, the, the redemption is offered through the Son, and, but it is the Son, of course, that's worked redemption. He has put that work in, in the incarnation and in the, cruci in the suffering and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the exaltation and in his, what we call his heavenly session, his sitting on the right hand of the Father and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. So there is no peace from God, there's certainly no love from God, and there's no faith granted from God unless it be given through the Son, through the work of the Son and through faith in the Son. It's only through Him. And so we must have that gift, which is why He says it. And that does show us, therefore, quite starkly, the exclusivity of the Gospel and the exclusivity of the Saviour. So all the efforts of man and all the religion of man and all the feelings and the spirituality of man is of, is of no account unless it is truly given by the Father through the Son.
And so in, in application of that is to considering who the Son is for ourselves. It's considering what the Son is and who the Father is. What a good and kind and providing Father, for the Father has provided the Son. He's provided us with life through the Son who created all things by the word of his power, sustains all things by the same word. But considering who the Father is, and as the Lord Jesus Christ helps us and says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we may not understand the Father, but when we've seen the Son and we've seen his graciousness and we've seen his compassion, we've seen his strength and his boldness, but also his love and tenderness, then we know who the Father is also. So we have the Father and we have the Son and we come to the Son to have more of the Father. And so we come to him and we read his word, we, we pray to him, we meditate upon what he says, and we do what he says. And that is a, a regular drinking then at the conduit of grace who is Jesus Christ. So the Father and then the Son, and then we, we end with the Holy Ghost. Now the Holy Ghost is, is, is clearly not mentioned here, and this is, there's a number of times in the New Testament where we only hear the word, the phrase, the Father and, and, and the Son, or the Lord or God and the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Father and Jesus. And it seems as though the Holy Ghost is sort of, it might appear he's left out. Well, he's not left out. He's authoring the words that we're reading. He's bringing that to us. He has not only inspired it, but the Holy Ghost preserves it from generation to generation. And then he opens our eyes that we would understand it. The Lord is my light. He is my salvation. The, 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 the Holy Ghost illuminates our, our, our mind and our hearts and our souls that we may, we may understand what he says to us. So the Holy Ghost is, ne is never separate from the Scriptures anyway. We, we understand that as, re as Reformed Christians, something that the, the, the charismatic church and others do, just do not understand. They split the two. So we've considered then that the Father is the, let's just say, the planner of redemption, that the Lord is the purchaser of redemption, but it, it is the Holy Ghost is the great applier of redemption. Well, he's the great revealer of redemption, but he's the great applier of redemption if we just keep it in the sense of grace, because that's what we're considering, the gifts, the giver of grace. And so the, the, he applies redemption to us, and he applies all the, all the, all the, all the gifts and all the benefits uh, that accompany redemption or they flow forth from redemption. It is he that works faith in our hearts. It's he that is at work to convict us of our sin, at work in, in very deep ways in the conscience of man and woman and boy and girl. And it's he that causes us to repent and to, and to desire repentance, to desire to bow the knee before God that we've offended, to desire to take hold of Christ as our only hope instead of looking to ourselves and our, our supposed uh, works acceptable to God. It's what the Holy Ghost does. And so he takes that word and he brings this peace and he brings this love and he brings this, this faith that we, are, uh, that we are looking at. So where Paul says, peace be to the brethren, who brings it to the brethren? It is the Holy Ghost and the love with faith. It is from God the Father, we could say, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ but it's certainly applied to the indwelling Spirit of God. And, and so we could we just close when we consider what the Scriptures say, and actually what he says earlier on in the letter 
if we desire to grow in grace, and this is his last wish, I want you to grow in grace. He mentions two, or two and a half, three graces. He mentions them by name, but he desires that they grow in grace. Now he said in Ephesians 4 and verse 30, he said, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Grieve not the Holy Ghost, who is the Spirit of Christ. So where we, we may not understand the Father, especially if you've had a distant father or a bad father, uh, but you'll understand the Father when we see Christ. But if the Holy Ghost is also called the Spirit of Christ, and we see something of the, 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 the beauties of Christ and, and, and the love of Christ and the kindnesses of Christ, then, then understand that this is also a description of the Holy Ghost. And it is He who is within us. It, it is He that seals Christ to us. And therefore we're not to grieve Him. Because you're grieving the Spirit of Christ. And if you say you love Christ, why would you want to do anything against Christ? And if we're going to be full, of tree and tree, full, full and complete Trinitarians, why would we want to do anything against the Father? For Christ is that express image of the Father. And so we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit, he says, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And so we, we take that advice then of the following two verses. We, we close with this, uh, this thought really is this. And verses 31 and 32 of Ephesians 4, as he describes what that grieving is, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So it is those things that would take away peace and take away love and take away faith from a congregation that grieves the Holy Spirit, and that's what he closes his epistle with before we get to the final benediction. The Apostle Paul, who was, has labored, he labored at a time in Ephesus. It wasn't a 20-year ministry or a five-year ministry. What we understand, it was uh, a few years, a handful of years before the Lord called him away back into the mission field to travel and preach. But he, he knows them, and he, and he knows still that he needs it, as we all do, to have that peace and that love and that faith lest we grieve the Holy Spirit, lest we grieve Jesus Christ. May God bless that word to us and may, may he also grant us that grace that has been spoken of here. Uh, peace be then to you and, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. We thank thee, our God, for thy word. Thou knowest our weakness and our tendency not to take it up and apply it always. But here we see the heart of the apostle for the believers in Ephesus. We understand that what he says about that congregation or that collection of congregations in that city and the area is not far different from every congregation's need for peace, love, faith, and for each believer's need, peace, love, and faith. Lest we grieve 
the Spirit of Christ. O Lord, that we would have that greater understanding and sight of the triune Jehovah God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And that we would see the goodness and the kindness and the provision of the Father and the applying work of the Spirit. That without the Spirit, we would not receive one thing from Christ and nothing from the Father who works through Christ. And so, Lord, bless that word to us that we may have that grace unto grace, that we may have grow from glory unto glory. For Christ truly will have the preeminent place in our own heart and in our own lives. We pray thee these things, and we plead with thee for that help, that Christ will be truly exalted, whom to know is life eternal. Lord, we pray in the name of thy Son, and our Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen.